This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know, from your favorite books and the world in which they live, to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on Sirius XM Book Radio Channel 80. I'm Rose Fox. I'm a reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, senior editor at Publishers Weekly, bringing you the very best of book talk. We're coming to you directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. We're here for you and we want to answer your questions. Send them to us at pwradio at publishersweekly.com or tweet them to pubweeklyradio, that's Radio on Twitter. Today, we'll be talking with Ellen Sussman, author of The Paradise Guest House. Then, PW Deputy Reviews Editor Mike Harvke will tell us about some other interesting novels coming out this summer. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, which is powered by Nielsen BookScan. So you want to hit nonfiction first, Mark? Lay it on me. Let's do it. Let's do it. Well, debuting at number six is Cooked, A Natural History of Transformation. Uh, This is Michael Pollan's book, which I was going to wager on, but decided not to. And I I think I would have been really smart to to pick uh, the top 10. But but in any case, we say in the review, Pollan eloquently explains how grilling with fire, braising, baking bread and fermented foods have impacted our health and culture. For instance, he says, cooking over high heat enabled primates brains to grow much bigger and digest their food faster, making them more efficient. Uh, Whereas fermented foods like kimchi can promote and encourage the growth of good bacteria in your gut. Right. So, uh, and this book, and we're not surprised. I mean, he he wrote The Omnivore's Dilemma and In Defense of Food. I mean, really great commentary on food and how we eat. Mm-hmm. I came in at number six. Number one, we're just going to go right to the top here. Now, sure. this is uh, Let's Explore Diabetes with Owls. Uh, not exactly the title, but that seems like one that would land on the number one uh, list. But when you consider it's David Sedaris coming in from Little Brown, not surprised. Now, I had said that it was going to land in the top five, and it did. You were very conservative. Yes, I was. They're fact, number one with a bullet. <laughs> right, right. Uh, in our review, we said uh, Sedaris's latest essay collection possesses all the wit, charm, and poignancy his readers have come to expect uh, certain things like his father, just uh, recollections of his father hounding him to get a colonoscopy, which in David Sedaris's uh, hands can be a wonderful, wonderful story, mm-hmm. uh, as well as his uh, his father in his underpants berating him as a schoolboy. So, I mean, you can just picture the kind of work that uh, uh, Sedaris has or the kind of uh, stuff material uh, Sedaris has to work with. Sure. All right. So now I had predicted there's a book, Frozen in Time, an epic story of survival and a modern quest for lost heroes of World War II. This is by uh, Mitchell Zukoff from Harper. Now, I had predicted that this was going to be in the top 15. And, well, it landed on the top 40, but at number 22. So I was a little bit off. It's kind of close. Yeah. And the review of this in this harrowing true life adventure, journalist Zukov, he wrote uh, Lost in Shangri-La, another mm-hmm. exploration book. Zukov follows the crew of an American B-17 bomber that crash landed in 1942 while searching for another downed plane. And on a vast glacier in the Greenland ice cap, which is one of the most, you know, as we know, desolated and inhospitable lands, uh, you know on earth mm-hmm. so it's so you have a lot of you know you have world war ii you have war you have exploration you have discovery and you have tragedy all in one so it seems to be a uh, pretty well read so far mm-hmm. or at least bought and that's what i have for our uh oh i have one more and this is a children's star wars vader's little princess which landed on the list and this is kind of like star wars moments with a twist wonderfully illustrated uh certain things like from tea parties uh this little girl uh it's it's about a little girl thus uh, the little princess of the title tea parties to teaching princess leia how to fly a tie fighter anyway it's a cute little story that landed number 10 on the on the list that sounds very adorable yeah it's sweet and yeah it just goes to show geeks have the buying power yeah right exactly (laughs) we're 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 out there yeah that's right things on the bestseller list yeah it's great I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. We're giving you a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, which is powered by Nielsen BookScan. 
I have a couple of things for the fiction list. Um, last week, we uh, talked about some predictions for this week's bestseller yeah, yeah. list. And I said that the hit by David Baldacci would be in the top five. Well, it's number one. Wow. It, uh, number one, pretty impressively, actually, it sold twice as many copies as the number two book, which is the Nora Roberts book that was in the number one spot last week. That's huge. Yeah. So uh, Baldacci's a safe bet. Yeah, sure. I, I sure. really, uh, I, I, I had a pretty easy time there yeah i think one. we kind of both did with both of ours how yeah. how how amazing is that that there are two new fiction and non-fiction titles that we both called on the list and they both hit number one yeah well it's we're just that good gosh we are I know. <laughs> <laughs> so pw didn't review this book and um, we tend not to review baldacci's books for whatever reason maybe his publisher doesn't send them to us right. or you know possibly they don't want to fuss around too much with advanced reviews because they worry about spoilers and these thriller stories it's uh, it's important to keep the suspense sure. so instead uh, i went and looked up a couple of amazon reviews because i was curious you know, oh, all, these, yeah, yeah, yeah. all these people buying the book and uh pushing it up to the top of the bestseller list obviously would have some opinions about sure. it so one person said the hit is the second book in the will roby assassin series after the innocent and is another well-written captivating thriller that grabs the reader's attention and won't let go until the very end then it becomes a memorable story you won't forget anytime soon wow but there was another review that said the author must have been paid by the word he gets into the protagonist's heads and tells us what they're thinking then skips to the third person and restates what they thought about i fell asleep four to five times while reading after plodding along for 400 pages the climax was anticlimactic on the plus side i found no spelling errors Save your eyeballs. Read the side of a cereal box. <laughs> Ooh, harsh. so a uh, little, little bit of give and take. But I will say that that one star review is definitely in the minority. There are already a couple hundred very, very positive reviews out there. So Baldacci yeah. fans will certainly want to pick this one up. And it's it's amazing, you know, when you look at those Amazon reviews, it's just how much you know how personal it is to to people and how varied the reviews can be. How one person can absolutely love it, while another reader would like. Like this one who gave it one star would prefer to read a cereal box or, right. or something that won't put her to sleep or him. Um, I also wanted to mention uh, really quickly, since we were talking about last week's show, last yeah. week we talked with Jane Ann Krentz about her new book uh, yeah. under the name Amanda Quick. Right. That's on our list at number seven this week. Oh, so great. Congratulations, oh, Jane. Great. Number three on the fiction list is Fly Away by Kristen Hanna. She's a prolific novelist mm-hmm. and you know, she wrote firefly lane which was a best-selling book and this is a we call it a slow paced but largely well executed sequel and uh, the the pw review says that the plot is unnecessarily repetitive at times coming to a standstill Mm -hmm. but fans will appreciate the depth of character as they wade toward a neatly tied up and heartwarming denouement Mm. so that's one of those mixed reviews Uh, right it's got its pros and cons but she certainly got her fans. Sure. Yeah. Well, that's it. I mean, with with certain certain you know writers, the fans will well you know they'll they'll may they may excuse a book or two if it's a little bit slow paced, but they'll still buy the book. They'll still follow the writer, and you know from one book to another, which is good. They they're true to them. Absolutely. And there were just a couple others that I wanted to mention very quickly. Yeah. Um, Sophie Kinsella's Wedding Night, which is number six on our fiction list, and Isabel Allende's Maya's Notebook, which is number 20 on the oh, fiction wow. list. And um, both of our reviews note that these are kind of departures for these authors. So uh, Kinsella wrote Confessions of a Shopaholic. Mm-hmm. Um, she's certainly known that. for Chicklet, and this is uh, definitely a diversion from that. Uh, it's uh, it's it's a, a slower story, a more interesting sort of in-depth story exploring the relationship between two people and uh, and how it develops over right. time. Um, and uh, the Allende, we say she moves away from her usual magical realist historical fiction into a contemporary setting, but the result is a chaotic hodgepodge. Mm. So uh, sometimes you stretch yourself, you can achieve unexpectedly great things, right. and sometimes you stumble a little. Yeah, this is true. And, and when we were talking to Jane Ann Krenz about uh, her writing and mm-hmm. about how you know she, she had written a book that uh, almost you know tanked her career, which was a departure, perhaps from some of her other books but then she came up and wrote in a, with a different name uh, to kind of resuscitate it and again. in a different genre and in a different genre so right, you, exactly. sometimes you have to try a few things before right. you find the one that, sure. yeah. that works for 
you. Yeah. And since you mentioned a kid's book, I also had one, actually. Oh, great. Um, this has got a starred review from Publishers Weekly, and it's That Is Not a Good Idea by Mo Willems, who uh, is the author of Don't Let the Pigeon Drive the yes. Bus. And, yeah, big uh, fan at yeah. our house. Big, I'm, big fan I'm at our sure. house. I'm uh, sure. Very popular. And so this is... Uh, a, picture book that's modeled after a silent movie where you basically you know it's, it's imagine watching a horror movie and you're like don't go in there so in in this one there's a sly fox who tries to lure a duck into the woods uh, and you know he's he's very much the dastardly villain and she's the shy right. ingenue and of course the audience keeps saying that's not a good idea <laughs> Fantastic! So that, that's oh, that's definitely that's a read along. Yes, and definitely. I'm, I'm sure you'll have the audience hollering. Oh, that looks great! So we have just a a, a short minute before yeah. we have to wrap up the segment, yeah. and so I wanted to see if we had any predictions for next uh, week's bestseller. I, I, I got to say, I think the biggest book uh, for nonfiction that's coming out. This is a book that was embargoed, meaning the publisher didn't release it to review outlets at all or, or perhaps gave them just a week to review it, if not a few days. This one is printed for the, – the print run was about 750,000 copies. This is Amanda Knox's Waiting to be Heard, her memoir. Right. Uh, and, and as we know, this is Amanda Knox who was tried then released for murder in Italy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she's now been asked to go back to Italy for a retrial. And the New York Times already, had already come out with a review of it, and the publisher, Harper, paid a lot of money. We're talking millions, and, and they're really banking on this to not only land uh, high on the bestseller list, but to stay there for some time. And I think it will. At least I think it will definitely land in the top five. Mm-hmm. Uh, All right, and, number and, five. I'm yeah, going to write that yeah, down. Yeah, 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 exactly. So uh, we'll just see how long it stays there, see if it has the staying power. But um, for those who have been following the trial and the saga, by all counts, it seems like there's some maybe well-tread information, but some good, enough good, interesting nuggets to to keep readers' uh, attention. Mm -hmm. So that's what I got. What about you? There's nothing that really grabs me on the fiction list. I mean, the Jennifer Winner's book, The Next Big Thing, uh, is coming out. They're printing 400,000 copies of that in Washington Square Press. So they're definitely hoping that that's going to be big. But, you know, I'm not that familiar with her work or her fan base, so I'm going to reserve judgment on that. But one book that I am familiar with is Nosferatu. That's N-O-S number four, A number two, like a license plate. Uh, oh, wow. By yeah, Joe yeah. Hill. Uh, we actually published a signature review of this by author Joe Lansdale, who does a lot of interesting sort of Southern Gothic horror. And um, Joe Hill is uh, actually Joe Hillman King. He's Stephen King's son mm. and definitely did his best to make a name for himself before revealing to the world his parentage. But it certainly has given his career a boost since that connection became known. But he's a very good writer on his own. He's got a lot of fans. And there are some very big reviews that just came out of this in major newspapers, including the New York Times. So I, I think it'll be very interesting to see whether it hits the list. I, I might be very conservative there and say top 20. Oh, wow. I'll, I'll be interested to see. That's, sure. that's taking a risk. Okay. Yeah, we'll see what happens next week. We'll see what happens next week, indeed. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Ellen Sussman will tell us about writing novels that take place in fascinating locations around the world. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Ellen Sussman on the line. She's published three novels, most recently, The Paradise Guest House, and is also the editor of Bad Girls, 26 Writers Misbehave, and Dirty Words, a literary encyclopedia of sex. Ellen, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, it's my pleasure. So, Publishers Weekly gave your new book, The Paradise Guest House, a starred review, calling it a touching panorama of paradise. Can you tell us a little bit about the novel? Sure. Uh, I was so pleased with the starred review. It's a very nice thing to have happen. Uh, The novel is, uh, the idea for the novel came on a uh, trip to Bali that I took with my husband in 2005, and... It was actually right after the second series of terrorist attacks in Bali. Do you remember the very the terrible attacks in 2002 that killed over 200 young people at sure. um, at nightclubs? Right. Um, yeah. mm-hmm. So we waited a while, thinking you know Bali's not safe. And three years later, booked a trip there. And about three weeks before we were set to leave, there was another series of terrorist attacks. Mm-hmm. And most people we knew said, "You're out of your mind. Don't go to Bali." And for some reason, we felt 
very strongly that we, we wanted to go. Um, and off we went. It turned out to be a, a really interesting time to be in Bali. There were no tourists. In two weeks, we never saw another Westerner. And so that we got to know uh, the real Bali, and we got to know the Balinese, we got to travel the country in a, um, a pretty intimate way. Um, and I was taken by both how lovely the country is and how astonishingly um, beautiful, deep, interesting, peaceful the people are, and the wild disconnect between terrorism and what we saw there. It, mm-hmm. it was as if we, I just couldn't make sense of those things. So it was even by the time I finished this two-week vacation that I had um, my idea for the novel, which was to take a young American woman who, is, who had been caught in the bombings in 2002 and have her return to Bali a year later for a uh, healing ceremony, but also to find the man who saved her during those attacks. Now, an event like a bombing uh, really both affects people individually and reverberates through an entire culture. Right. So how did you balance and integrate those aspects of the story, both the sort of micro and macro levels? The one thing that I focused probably most strongly on in the first uh, draft was that I wanted the connection between Jamie and Gabe, who were both caught in the bombing, both struggling to save other people until finally Gabe has to save Jamie, that this experience so overwhelmed them that when they escaped it and fled to heal in a little tiny beach cottage some miles away, that they were in some ways drawn together so much more intensely than people are normally drawn together, they couldn't figure out what it was that was tying them together. Was it the fear of the rest of the world? Was it the, this idea that the rest of the world won't understand them, and yet they understand each other completely? Or was, was what was happening to, to them something to do with love in this very kind of hyped-up, supercharged atmosphere? And I, I do think that's true. I think that very much happens to people who are thrown into situations like that. After I wrote a first draft of the novel, I went to Bali to spend a month, and tough job for a writer, mm-hmm. um, and to do more research. And one of the things that I was very lucky to get involved in was an organization that had been created to help the survivors of the bombings and the families of the victims, to bring them together, to help them heal, to offer them financial support. And they offered me days of interviews with these people, which was so invaluable. And one thing I started to discover was what you're talking about, the bigger community. Mm-hmm. And that bigger community, or that experience of those bombings transformed Bali. Yeah, no, I'm sure it did. I think now that's it's a little less obvious because Bali is in full tourist bloom, post eat, pray, love. Mm-hmm. Um, but for all those years up to about 2006, Bali was a community that had come together to heal. And um, the wounds were bringing them together as well as the challenges of, of getting beyond that. I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. We're talking with author Ellen Sussman about her newest novel, The Paradise Guest House, and how she did research for that in Bali. Now, I was wondering, uh, many white Western authors really struggle with creating these very sensitive, authentic portraits of other cultures. It's very easy to fall into the traps of stereotypes or exoticism. So obviously you did a lot of research on the ground. You said you spent a couple of months there and really got to know people. So how did you handle those issues, those concerns? Very tricky. My last novel took place in Paris, and I had lived in Paris for five years. So I had none of that fear. I thought, I I know the French, I know expats in this town, you know, I know all the cultural clues, and I just felt very confident going into it. So I didn't give that issue much attention until I got to Bali and thought, whoa, there is so much to learn. I mean, for me to believe that I can have a handle on how the Balinese feel about subject of reincarnation... Uh, I mean, there's so many things that are absolutely essential to understand to make my story work. So I, the way I most prefer doing research, I, I will read the books and the magazine articles, but I like talking to people. So in the time that I was there, 
I'd say I had every lunch and every dinner was spent talking to somebody who would give me insight into either the expat community, the Balinese Hinduism, uh, the tourist community, just coming at that in every possible way. And the interesting part about it is that, as I said, I wrote the first draft of the novel before I went and did the, the heavy research. And um, Bam Bang and Neoman, Bam Bang is this street kid who doesn't fit in either. He came to me wholly created out of thin air. I, I was just, mm-hmm. I had Jamie arrive in, on the streets of Ubud, and all of a sudden this kid and his dog were following her down the street, and I just knew him intimately, though I've never met anyone like him. So I didn't worry about him being a stereotype or fitting some needs because he was truly my creation. It was much harder when I came to someone like Neoman, who's the man who owns the guest cottage where uh, Jamie is staying, her host. And I felt like I needed to get under the surface of who he was, what his pain was all about, Balinese hospitality, which is a very big deal, and I needed to understand how does he keep offering uh, it to be so hospitable when he's grieving in the way he is. Yeah, he's a widower, right? Yes, his wife was killed right. in the bombing. Mm. That's right. So those were my biggest challenges. And uh, I think the key for me, um, the key for me always is the personal story rather than the political story or the the great amount of research that I can do. So the time that I spent in Bali was time spent hearing people's stories. And then when I told the story of Jamie and Gabe and Bam Bang and Neoman, I was really trying to tell very personal stories, not everyone's story, not, you know, some grand statement about terrorism and how it affects us. I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. We're talking with author Ellen Sussman about her new book, The Paradise Guest House. But Ellen, I also want to talk a little bit. You've, you've edited a couple of projects, and one of them was Dirty Words, a literary encyclopedia of sex. That's right. Tell us about that. I mean, this is a, uh, something completely different from completely writing different. fiction <laughs> novels. And how did you come upon this? Well, I had... Um... Right before that, and it's so clear if you hear both titles that there, you can learn a little bit about me. The title, um, the first anthology is called Bad Girls, 26 Writers Misbehave. Some years well, sure, back, let, I, start, I started Yeah, let's writing. talk about that. Let's talk about that one then, since, since uh, that was your first, and then we'll go to Dirty Words. Okay. Well, I had been, I started writing personal essays not years and years ago, but I think it was right when my first novel was coming out. And I wrote an essay for Newsweek that had a personal angle to the novel that was coming out. And I was inundated with emails as people responded very personally to that story that I told. It's different than fiction. I mean, I might be telling a very true story, but I'm not telling someone in a personal essay. I mean, in a piece of fiction, this is me. I'm bearing my soul. Right. And with a personal essay, I am bearing my soul, and the reader responds by bearing his or her soul. Mm-hmm. And I kind of liked that for a while. I thought this is so intimate and so profound, the way, mm-hmm. way we, I'm connecting with readers. So I went off on this little personal essay kick for a few years. I'm, I'm now kind of done with that. <laughs> and after a period of time, I thought everybody else has these anthologies going on. I want to do my own anthology let me look at all the essays I've written and see if there is a common theme. And sure enough, the common theme was my bad girl escapades, something that I was writing a lot about. And I thought, well, that'd be kind of fun to try to explore what makes a bad girl a bad girl. Mm. And it was fun because I actually thought every bad girl kind of loved being a bad girl and had no regrets and just spent her life doing things, breaking the rules. But to my great surprise, and it was much more interesting to find out that there were lots of writers who had been bad girls and rude the day or, you know, blamed society or their mother. And we all had different ways of coming at it. So that was fascinating. How did you go about finding writers for bad girls? Yeah. Did, you, did you have I, certain writers in mind or did I you? I did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I started with, you know, an obvious one. I had to have Erica Zhang um, in the book. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I contacted her, and she said, yes, of course. I mean, I didn't know her. And that happened with uh, almost all of the writers. As soon as I told them 
what the concept was for the book, they said yes. So I was primarily looking for writers who I thought would have a good bad girl story to tell and who were such good writers that in telling that story, they would examine what is it all about, right? And, and did you have any writers or any pieces that were surprising to you that explored misbehaving or bad girls in a way that you, you, you didn't think about? Yeah, uh, definitely. I think that a lot, I thought going into this, that a lot of, that bad girls are born, not made. That, you know, we, we just, I have two daughters, you know, mm. they come out with their personalities so formed, and we, we can kind of, you know, shape them a little bit along the way. In fact, I've been very lucky with my daughters, because they have a bad girl mother, the only way <laughs> they think they can do is rebel. Uh-huh. So I have, two, I have two very good <laughs> girl daughters. So I hadn't really thought about the political argument, which is a very good one, and I grew up as a strong feminist, and that argument is that women become bad girls because there are so many rules against us and our behavior in our society that keeps us from doing what we want. And I welcome that. It doesn't seem to me that it goes against my notion that we're born rather than made. I think it's some combination of all kinds of things that is really interesting. But then I think also the surprise of how we feel about it. Do we embrace our bad girlness is important. <laughs> mm-hmm. So then Dirty Words came from bad girls because mm. I had expected that more of the essays would be about sex and about sexual escapades, and they weren't. And I thought, I know those stories are out there. Why aren't writers writing about it? And I think that it has to do with that literary writers are not very comfortable writing about sex. It belongs to you know, the world of erotica or porn or something else altogether. And um, that gave me the idea of putting together an anthology where I would actually ask very literary writers to choose a dirty word, any word, and write either a personal essay, a short story, a poem, a riff, a rant uh, about that, addressing issues of sex directly. Now, you said you, uh, you're a very strong feminist. How did you bring that feminist sensibility to dirty words? Well, you know, I, I, I think that, uh, uh, let's see, the best way, the, the most feminist side of it, I think, is that women are out there talking about sex in the same way that men are out there talking about sex. Sure. Never for a second did I think, you know, this has to be, you know, a topic that men talk about. My friends and I all talk about sex. Mm. Why couldn't women write about <laughs> sex? Right. So it was a kind of open, since I didn't think that had been happening very much, I think putting women on the page that way was a way of standing up and claiming our own sexuality and our own sort of fierceness about that. We're not hiding how we feel and what, what we do. There's no reason to be kind of uh, to deny those feelings, which I think an earlier generation might have done. I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. We're talking with author Ellen Sussman, who's also an editor. And I was going to ask, actually, it can be very hard being both an editor and a writer. How do you balance that, and which one do you like better? It is a hard balance. I hear you completely. I um, devote my mornings to my fiction, and um, I am very good at writing, especially a first draft, with a kind of, um, I guess it's a kind of cockiness or ego that um, has me able to turn off the inner critics. Mm -hmm. So in the morning for three hours, I'm just spilling it onto the page. When you're freshest. When I'm freshest. I I don't read before I start writing. I don't want voices Mm -hmm. of other writers in my mind. Um, I'm looking for my own voice and to get it on the page. And I I don't critique, I don't edit my work, and I don't have anyone else edit my work until I have finished a first draft, even of a whole novel. Mm-hmm. And that keeps the editing process out of it. So then, if I put on my editing hat in the afternoon, I also teach writing, so that's, that's oh, more like the right. editing hat. Right. Um, that, it feels like a, almost a different species. It's almost as if I should change my clothes and come out wearing something completely different. Then I hear those uh, those nasty voices that say, you know, this sucks. <laughs> uh, right. You can do better than this. Um, 
you know, no, you wouldn't write it that way. Um, but in the morning when I'm writing, I somehow create a space for myself that I don't allow that to happen. We've been talking with Ellen Sussman, and you can find her newest novel, The Paradise Guest House, in stores right now. Ellen, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you. This was really interesting to talk to you. A real pleasure. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Deputy Reviews Editor Mike Harvke will tell us about some hot fiction titles coming out this summer. Stay tuned. back. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. And you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from one of the editors at Publishers Weekly. And today, Deputy Reviews Editor Mike Harfke is here with us to tell us about some hot fiction titles coming our way this summer. Thank you very much for joining us, Mike. Thank you. Thank you, Rose and Mark. So are you excited about the summer in books? I am very excited about the yeah. summer in books. Actually, I'm more excited about this summer than last summer. Really? Yes. And tell us why. I think it's been a really good year yeah. so far yeah. for fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Uh, I've been able to read a little more, mm-hmm. also, of the upcoming uh, titles than I was last year. And I'm um, just seeing some, some really good stuff. What's and, interesting? Uh, well, I've, I actually picked three books to right. talk about today. Um, one, as usual, a story collection. That's, that's my thing. You, you, you and I share this love for short fiction. You know, yeah. I'm never going to discourage this. And I'm always happy to hear about it. And it's great because everyone keeps talking about the death of the short story, how they don't sell. You can't sell a collection of short stories exactly. anymore. But yeah. here we are. I mean, every time we've had you on, you've talked about, and, and Rose, we've talked to her about her collection. It's like there's short stories everywhere. There's short stories everywhere. And, and, and in recent months, there have been... Not only a few short story collections on the bestseller list, like George Saunders and uh, sure, Karen Russell, right, right. but just some really stale, stellar examples of, of the form coming mm-hmm. out. I'm going to talk about that last, though. Good. Oh, what That's a tease. Mm-hmm, exactly. And um, go first into Elliot Holt's book, uh, You Are One of Them. Um, this is uh, coming out in um, very soon, actually. Mm-hmm. I think it's June. Great. And it's a book... That uh, got a lot of attention when it sold. Um, Andrea Walker uh, bought this, an editor, um, and she's at Penguin now. And the book is set in both 1980s America and 1990s Moscow. And it is based on the actual real case of Samantha Smith. Uh, do you remember this at all? Uh, I, tell us the... Uh... I didn't remember it, and then we actually had a Q&A with uh, Elliot Holt, and uh, she she mentioned this this um, young girl mm-hmm. who in the early 80s wrote a letter to the Soviet premier, Andropov, and asking for peace, and became... Well, she got a reply, and uh, she was invited to the Soviet Union, right. huh. and she was this... Literally, as Holt said, you know, right out of central casting. She was a, a very cute, all-American girl. She had ponytails, mm-hmm. and uh, she was in the Girl Scouts, I, I believe. And <laughs> she went to Moscow, and they did this whole media tour where she was taken to sites and, uh, you know, paraded around a bit. And then she actually went on, when she came back to America, to become a, a total celebrity. She put a book out that I believe Little Brown published. My gosh. Um, about her experience. And then she ended up in a um, television show with Robert <laughs> Wagner. No kidding. In the what? 80s called Lime Street. <laughs> this is crazy. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And she became even more infamous, I, I suppose, or, or historical when she was killed in a plane crash. That uh, apparently it was in a small aircraft uh, crash, so there was no black box. And, of course, because she had had experiences in the Soviet Union and, and the threat of nuclear war and all of that was still going on, mm-hmm. uh, there was a lot of conspiracy uh, ideas mm-hmm. uh, thrown around wow. at the time. So, <clears throat> I'm sorry, when, when was the plane crash? About when? About 85. 85, okay. 1985. Wow. Yeah, and Robert Wagner uh, spoke at her funeral, and uh, this was... Oh, wow. Yeah, I, I that grew That is up really one of those truth is stranger than fiction things. Yeah. Like, if you wrote this, people would be like, no, no, that's too improbable. <laughs> right, right. And so uh, Holt has taken that uh, as uh, her leaping, out, leaping off point, and she's created two characters, uh, two girls of about 10 years old called Sarah, and then her friend Jenny Jones, uh, modeled after Samantha Smith. 
they both write letters to Andropov. Only Jenny's letter gets a reply. Um, we're not exactly sure for a while in the novel why that is and whether or not Samantha's or, or Sarah's uh, letter was was mailed in the first place. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the uh, conspiracy theory theme sort of begins early in the novel. Um, and uh, But in the novel, Jenny Jones is invited to Moscow. She becomes a huge celebrity, and it really drives a wedge between these two girls mm -hmm. who were best friends before this happened. And then uh, the same thing in the novel happens, that, that uh, Jenny Jones dies in a plane crash or apparently dies in a plane crash. Because, ah, there's, right, yeah, right. Ten years later, and this is where Holt really brings the imagination into things, Sarah, now in her early 20s, or just about 20, uh, after just graduating from college, gets a cryptic message from Moscow, well, from now the, the um, just Russia, after the uh, fall of the Soviet Union, uh, inviting her to uh, come and um, suggesting that... Jenny Jones is still alive mm. and living in Russia. And, um, I mean, it's a very interesting... Yeah. It sounds really intense. Yeah, it's an interesting plot, and the book is essentially divided right down the middle. Um, there's part one and part two, and part one is mostly in America. Part two it begins when um, Sarah heads to Moscow. And um, what Holt excels at mm -hmm. in the book is creating... Um, just sort of getting the cultural details just right. Mm -hmm. She does it in 80s America uh, with things like friendship pens and Casey mm -hmm. Kasem's Top 40 and the persistent threat of nuclear war. And then she gets it just right in the 90s in Moscow with tracksuits everywhere. Everyone is wearing <laughs> tracksuits. I and remember. the constant yep. haze of cigarette smoke mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. everywhere in the airports, in the offices, in the supermarkets, everywhere. Well, I don't even know if there are supermarkets, actually. There so. were. I, and it was funny. So I remember that's when I was in Russia. It was the early 90s. Uh, so uh, this this is, uh, on many level, levels, very intriguing for me. Yeah. And Elliot Holt was there as well in the uh, early 90s. In our Q&A, when we talked to her, she mentioned living there in 1997 and 1999. And she actually worked in advertising. And that's a thread that's in the novel as well. And uh, it's a little... Right too much to go into in, in depth on the radio, but there's one of the things that's interesting is the conspiracy and other themes going on in the novel are definitely brought out right. in the Moscow sections by the advertising campaigns that are being put into play and just the complexity there because often things that are, that are being sold to the uh, Moscovites mm -hmm. as a particularly Russian experience or culturally significant uh, brand or whatever is actually owned by American companies or something right. like that. So, and I just wanted to uh, point out, uh, like, read a, a couple of lines from yeah. the book. Sure. Speaking of how sometimes Holt can use really great economy to establish those cultural details early on. So, in the '80s, the narrator says uh, this. The ringleader of the group was Kim, a blunt blonde girl whose popularity, popularity had been established in kindergarten and who retained her tyrannical grip on the class. She liked to check the labels on everyone's sweaters. <laughs> if you weren't wearing Benetton, she made sure you were shunned. I didn't own any Benetton sweaters. Um, so uh, that, I felt, was a really nicely economical way to establish you know, we forget back then Benetton was really kind of it was a, big a, deal. a huge yeah. brand right. And, right. and they really pushed the whole branding uh, idea. Another uh, minor thing, when, when uh, the character first arrives in Russia, uh, it, uh, this, this bit I thought was telling. It was early afternoon when my plane landed uh, down in Moscow and the Russians on board, many of whom had been drinking heavily throughout the flight, burst into boisterous applause. The clapping terrified me. Celebrating the routine as miraculous didn't bode well. So uh, there's there's also some really nice subtle wit going on uh, in this book, and I thought it was I thought it was an intelligent uh, novel that is also a, a fun read. I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. We're talking with PW Deputy Reviews Editor Mike Harvke about some hot books coming out this summer. He's just told us about You Are One of Them by Elliot Holt, and he mentioned a Q&A with her, which you can find on our website at publishersweekly.com. So what else do you have for us, Mike? Paul Yoon's Snow Hunters. 
Yoon uh, achieved some prominence with Once the Shore, a short story collection that was with Sarah Band a few years ago, and he's back with a uh, lovely and melancholy little novel, under 200 pages, and apparently mm. this was really carved down from a 500-page manuscript. That and, should happen to more 500-page <laughs> yeah. manuscripts. I, I mean, I say this because I see all the 500-page epic fantasy manuscripts. And I think yes. This would make a great short story. But <laughs> <laughs> or maybe even a limerick. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and the, the, the craft really shows in every, on every page of this book. Every, mm-hmm. The sentences, the paragraphs mm-hmm. are, are almost carved to a, a nice precision. And so Snow Hunters is set immediately following the Korean War, uh, which is territory that uh, Yoon explored in Once the Shore. This is about uh, Johan, a North Korean soldier who uh, has been captured and then eventually take is given ocean passage to Brazil, where he is let, let off on the ship, uh, let off uh, on the shore, and makes his way. He has a letter that someone has given him to a tailor in town, a Japanese tailor, an old Japanese right. tailor named Kiyoshi. And he, he comes not being able to speak more than a few words of Portuguese nor of Japanese and mm-hmm. presents this letter to this old tailor right. and is taken on as an apprentice. And the book covers about a decade or so in the in the life of, of this young man as he just moves in and he starts to learn the language and he works with Johan, who the first thing, it's, there's wonderful moments and scenes uh, in the book when Johan shows up and Kyoshi sees him. He doesn't know why he's mm-hmm. there, of course. Right. And Johan has this little letter. And Kyoshi comes up to him and he uh, starts to play with his jacket. And he's tugging at the shoulder and he's tugging at the sleeve. And he says, oh, I, I see what's wrong here. And uh, just thinks that he's there to have his suit fixed (laughs) and the lovely recurring things that happen is that in fact Kiyoshi does make him a new set of clothes Hmm. Johan never sees him doing it they just appear one morning and he uh, puts them on and they last a long time and um, eventually Kiyoshi goes off goes away and Johan takes over the shop and the book is really just um a, a very sad and uh, beautifully written uh, evocation of a solitary life. Wow! Um, yeah, it sounds almost like a like a folk tale, like a, a fable of some sort. There's the long voyage and the <laughs> mysterious suit of clothing that just appears one morning, which is the, very much a fairy tale element. Yeah, it's really well, interesting. The emperor's clothes. Yeah, but. absolutely. I, and do you? I, I mean, you. You were able, you know, you, you selected something from Elliot Holt's uh, previous novel. Mm. Do, do you happen to have anything in, in this one that might give us a sense of of his writing style? Which it seems like in, in a book like this, the, it's the it's the writing that would that would carry it rather than say plot something. Absolutely, yeah, and and I do. Um, before I read it, I also I think just to introduce what I might read, um, Johann's really what. The, the only sort of interactions that he has outside of people coming in to have things tailored mm-hmm. and, um, and, and people on the street or whatever, he meets three people essentially in this, in this port town. One is a, a man named uh, Piche, uh, who is the church grounds, grounds, groundskeeper up the hill, and Johann starts spending more and more time with him. And uh, the other two are children, uh, a girl named Bia and a boy named Santi, uh, who I, I believe are siblings. There's a lot that goes unsaid in this. There's a lot that's not explained or laid out. And Bia and Santi come in and out of Johan's life over this decade, uh, almost with the seasons. Mm-hmm. And they, it turns out, were actually on the boat with him, that original boat that brought him to um, Brazil. And he, with very little, Yoon establishes this intense bond between Johan and, and Bia, and particularly the girl. So that said, I think the section I'm going to read actually has nothing to do with her. So um, here we <laughs> well, go. Let's see. <laughs> he imagined the tailor as a young man in his journey here, crossing an ocean on a slow-moving ship as he did himself. He wondered whether Kiyoshi had been wearing a uniform, whether there had been a family and where they were, what the man had fled from, if he had fled at all, what the man had let go of, and whether it was possible to regain anything, to search and find it once more. 
whether there was someone far away from here who remembered him. Well, Rose, you're absolutely right. There is something of a fable about that, yeah. about that prose. So. Yeah, uh, really just beautiful, and you finish the book and you just want to cry. Uh, <laughs> wow. One other little section, again, about the tailor. That old tailor whom he often missed. There were days when he paused in his work and listened, waiting for a noise, the sound of movement behind him, the quiet hum of another sewing machine, a chair adjusting, the patter of slippers on the, or the flare of matches. He heard nothing but his own machine in the street, and yet he stayed still, waiting. Wow. Beautiful. Wow. Beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah. And Yoon, uh, in the beginning, has uh, an, a little quote from a, a poem by Antace, which is from the poem, Driving with Dominic in the Southern Province, We See Hints of the Circus. And the, the excerpt is, Children in the trees, one falling into the grip of another. And... I only read that because Antache's influence is very clear mm. you know, mm-hmm. when you read this book. I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. We're talking with PW Deputy Reviews editor Mike Harfke about this summer reads. Now, Mike, at the beginning of our of our interview, you you kind of uh, uh, told us about a short story collection you were going to talk about. That's right. And what I do we hinted, have? and now we're we're here. Um, what we have this time is Byzantium. How would you say that? Exactly. Byzantium. Um, Byzantium, yeah. By Ben Stroud, which Mm -hmm. is coming out from Grey Wolf. This is the last time, apparently, that Grey Wolf will publish the Breadloaf Bakeless Prize winner. Um, Oh, right. This has been something they've been doing, and this this is this year's. Mm. It is a stunning collection that is notable for its lack of linkage. So this is one of the things you hear, and I, I believe I, I spoke once with you guys about Susan Steinberg's Spectacle, mm-hmm. uh, which was a collection I loved. And that is probably the, the most obvious example of, of linked short stories. The, mm-hmm. the narrator was almost always the same woman. They took place almost all in the same city, and they covered the same themes, but it was an incredibly alive and, and wonderful collection. And, and uh, what Stroud's doing in Byzantium is uh, literary gymnastics. He's incredibly dexterous. Mm-hmm. He leaps from uh, the Byzantine age uh, in the title story, which is about a, uh, it's set in, I believe, the 1600s. It's in Constantinople, and uh, it might be the 1300s. But anyway, it's uh, about a, a boy, uh, a, cr- a boy born crippled. And I'd actually like to read the beginning of that story to give you uh, an example a sort of A before we get to the B of uh, Stroud's dexterity. Right, great. So this is from the title story. I was born a disappointment. My father was John Lecapanos, one of the emperor's one of the emperor Maurice's favorite generals. He had risen through the ranks from a hovel in Thessaly and had plans to establish himself through me among the great families. In the years he awaited my arrival, he elaborated my future career the army, an illustrious marriage, a governorship of high ministerial position. But when I was finally brought to him, still smeared with my mother's blood, the first thing he saw curling toward him out of the blankets that swaddled me was the chewed red crook of my withered hand. Sorry about my terrible Greek pronunciation there. Um, But, yeah, it's a a boy born crippled and um, also sort of fable-esque. He's tasked by the emperor to essentially make good on the promise of his father by uh, going off and, and dealing with a dangerous monk, hmm. wow. or at least a monk that the emperor seems to fear. Interesting. This almost reminds me of a uh, Gogol short story uh, in Russian called Kolcheruki about a boy who's born with a withered hand to a, uh, a member of royalty. Anyway. Wow. So... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and uh, and and from this story, he, he leaps to East Texas, contem- oh my you gosh. know, modern day East Texas, for a story, in fact, called East Texas Lumber, mm-hmm. which begins. Back from lunch, I stood in the early June sun pulling two by sixes for somebody else's load. When Mike, the yard manager, came out of the office and yelled, "All right, Brian, I've got an easy one for you and Jimmy." It took me half a moment to register what he was saying. My mind had nestled itself against the secret moon-pale skin between the buttons of this shirt Angela sometimes wore at the hangout over in the strip mall where the Safeway used to be. 
completely different. <laughs> totally tone. different. Completely different, and each story, in fact, is 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 diff- as different right. from the next. Uh, he he deals with a 19th century detective. He's got an early American cult, um, and it, it seems as if there's nothing he can do. And it reminded me a lot of Jim Shepard, right? Who I know is a favorite of yours too. He is a favorite of mine, Jim Shepard. One of the, my favorite stories was Sans Farine, which right. was uh, about the domestic squabbles of an 18th century French executioner. <laughs> Oh, wow. <laughs> it also helps to have a sense of humor. Yeah, yeah. So tell us a little bit about when these books are coming out. When will people be able to find them in stores? Well, um, that is a good question there, Rose Fox. Um, uh, Elliot Holt's book, You're One of Them, is a June publication. And uh, they're going to have to wait a little bit longer than that for Byzantium, which is July, and uh, early August for Paul Yoon's Snow Hunters. Right. Um, and uh, there are, since we ended on Byzantium, I just wanted to mention a few other collections. Uh, and, and you can yeah. get some information on our on our website uh, for these uh, in the Summer Reads 2013. I was just going to say, yeah, I was just going to oh, talk right. about that. Publishersweekly.com. Uh, it, it, again, it's just kind of a stellar time for short stories. We have uh, a great collection called Bobcat from Rebecca Lee. Um, that's Algonquin. The Peripatetic Coffin by Ethan Rutherford, mm-hmm. is uh, also coming out. And uh, that one is not unlike Byzantium in terms of leaping around from one thing to the next, but there is a thematic link about mm-hmm. uh, isolation and containment going on in that collection. And then last is uh, Search Party by Valerie Trueblood, which is called uh, Stories of Rescue. Well, wow. thank you so much, Mike. My pleasure. Thanks, Mike. I, I'm excited every time you come and talk to us about a book. So I want to I want to pick one up and read it right away. You can do that. <laughs> I'm coming to your desk. I will lock the door. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> We've been talking with Deputy Reviews Editor Mike Harvey, who just gave us a roundup of summer fiction. There's some exciting things coming out. So thank you very much for stopping by and contributing. It was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. Always good to have you here. And that's it for today's show. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. If you want to hear your question on the air next week, just email it to us at pwradio at publishersweekly.com or tweet it at pubweeklyradio. That's pub, W-K-L-Y radio on Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. Tune in next week for more excellent book talk right here on Sirius XM Book Radio Channel 80. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show.